Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 110, Blank Faced Buster. Yeah, where we talk about the silent film star of your choosing based on the poll and some options. We've worked through quite a number of these episodes now, but this time around, y'all chose Buster Keaton, and it was a close one, but I am very excited to finally talk about Buster Keaton on the podcast. Absolutely. And so after we talked about Charlie Chaplin back in season one, we're we're two thirds of the way through the what's kind of known as the three great clowns of the silent film era. So we will get to Harold Lloyd uh, hopefully sooner rather than later on the podcast. But for now, let's talk about who this Buster Keaton guy is really was. Uh, He was born in 1895 in Kansas, uh, and he was actually born as Joseph Frank Keaton. But there's a story that has a couple slight variations about how he got the nickname Buster. Apparently, it happened very early, like when he was months old. There's a story where he fell down some stairs and just kind of shook it off and got up and, you know, was fine. And so someone, family friend was like, wow, he's a regular Buster. And so then his dad just started calling him Buster. And uh, now everyone in the world does, too. Um, That's a fitting story, considering where he ends up. Yeah, no kidding. And his whole family was performers. Uh, It was a vaudeville family. And I think we've talked about vaudeville on the show before. But basically, it was the old uh, an old variety show. You would go to the theater and not necessarily see a play, but you would see a bunch of acts. It could be musical acts or comedy acts or like typically um, fairly lowbrow. Yeah, it's it's kind of like America's Got Talent is probably the closest thing I can compare it to now, where you yeah, just, just like someone has something they can do, and yeah, they just go put on a show. A lot of flashy um, stuff, a lot of simple stuff, a lot of body stuff, um, exaggerated performances. Uh, has, yeah, a lot absolutely. of early film comedy has its roots in vaudeville. Yeah, very much so. And uh, so for Buster Keaton's family, their show was called The Three Keatons, And their show uh, basically consisted of uh, Keaton's mom playing an instrument and providing the music while Keaton's dad would pick him up and throw him around the stage, throw him into walls. Like he's three years old at this point, by the way, and just kind of like, you know, throw him into the orchestra pit and do all these kind of like just funny physical gags um, to the point that it actually kind of got him a couple of child abuse allegations. Uh, But they did do meticulous training. It was, you know, all done in a spirit of performance. And so Buster Keaton learned very early on how to do trick falls and how to fall properly without injuring himself. He actually rarely injured himself. You're a regular buster, kid. Yeah, he is. He's literally a regular buster. Um, And the show got so popular that it eventually changed its name to The Little Boy Who Can't Be Damaged because he was so good at just falling around the stage and getting thrown around um, and just kind of, you know, and I, like, and he, I also like how clunky that name is. I know it's really not, uh, <laughs> not catchy, um, but it's, it's also kind of known as one of the most dangerous acts ever done in vaudeville, which is crazy. Um, but Keaton loved it. Like this was not a thing where, you know, his dad is venting on him. This is all part of a performance and Keaton was very much part of that performance. Um, but he noticed that if he got too into it and he started laughing while he was being thrown around, there would be less laughs from the audience. And so that eventually evolved into his 
famous deadpan expression where he just kind of took the falls and, you know, had this kind of incredulous what just happened kind of look on his face. And that carried throughout his entire career is one of the things he's most well known for. Um, eventually he met, uh, this is many years later, he met Fatty Arbuckle in 1917 and they quickly became good friends and started working together. Keaton, uh, would direct a little bit. He would come up with gags for him. He would act in, uh, Arbuckle's films. And then he was so good at all that, that he was eventually given, uh, the freedom to direct his first two-reeler, which is a short film, basically 20 minutes long called One Week. We actually just talked about One Week recently it's on been our... One Week since you looked at me. Alex's trigger word. Uh, Doctor Head of Science, I'm sorry. We just talked about this on our bonus podcast because that came out 100 years ago. Uh, so you can check out our Patreon if you would like to hear about that. Both um, the short film and the song. Yeah, both of those. Um, so then eventually moved on to doing uh, feature films, uh, the General is generally considered his masterpiece. Um, and in 1928, he signed with MGM. And that he would often describe as the worst decision of his career because this was heavy into the studio system. And the studio became basically the creative control for him. He was so used to being able to do you know, whatever he wanted on his films and have a lot of control over the way that the gags came off and how the story went and all that kind of stuff that uh, when he had to report to the studio and higher ups and that kind of thing, uh, he got really demoralized by that. And then along the, around the same time, sound came along. And so then the studios were making films and the process of uh, in the early days of making those sound films included shooting every scene three times in three different languages. So they would do English, Spanish, and German, at least, I think. And for the languages that they didn't know, they had to learn them phonetically and just like repeat them on screen immediately after they learned how the how the words go. And uh, Keaton hated doing it this way. And so he just got like really depressed about it and eventually got fired from MGM. And his career really kind of started to... Uh, flounder really as far as like big things that he had, he was doing but he did continue to uh, make appearances he made some cameos in uh, film and television uh, in some big big films including Sunset Boulevard uh, in the good old summertime with Judy Garland limelight with Charlie Chaplin the only time Keaton and Chaplin showed up in the same film together and he was even on the Twilight Zone because I always got to plug my Twilight Zone um, and then eventually he passed away in 1966. But his legacy lives on, and uh, there's so much influence from Keaton that we see in, you know, comedy, in filmmaking, in so much aspects of cinema today that uh, his his contribution is just gigantic. Certainly, certainly, and he's from that era of creative freedom, uh, pre studio system where the people with the talent were the people in charge, um, yeah. which has its ups and downs, but it was the system that produces movies like these, which are very unique, very signature. And the entire, uh, piece definitely oozes his persona and his style, which, yeah. um, it's very easy to kind of, and, and it's also right to lump, uh, him and Chaplin and Lloyd into the same era and kind of the same category. Um, but he also has his own very unique 
brand of humor that's different from Chaplin's. Um, and we'll explore yeah. that as well today. Uh, but specifically, we're going to be talking about three movies of his, the first of which, all feature length, uh, the first of which is Sherlock Jr. from 1924, which is directed by Buster Keaton and is very meta. The second is The General from 1926, which is directed uh, both by Buster Keaton and Clyde Bruckman. Um, it's based on William Pittenger's memoir from the Civil War called The Great Locomotive Chase. Uh, and finally, we'll be talking about The Cameraman from 1928, which is also very meta, uh, which was directed by Buster Keaton, uncredited, and Edward Sedgwick. Um, this is the first film he made after signing with MGM, uh, but before his lack loss of faith in the system and um, his loss of complete creative freedom. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, so, yeah, I guess let's just get into it. Jason, why don't you set up Sherlock Jr. for us? Sherlock Jr. from 1924. A movie theater projectionist played by Keaton vies for the affections of a beautiful girl with his local rival, the Sheik. After the Sheik steals and then frames the projectionist for stealing a watch from the girl's family, the projectionist, who's been studying to be a detective, sets out to discover the truth of who's behind the watch theft. So he falls asleep during a film about the theft of a pearl necklace and dreams he enters the movie as the detective, Sherlock Jr., to solve the crime and save the day. Meanwhile, the girl he loves in the real world does some detective work of her own. All right, Alex, some of these is going to be like just uh, trying not to go through a list of every single gag in the movie because they're just so good. Um, and sometimes the films do get a little uh, vignette where scenes feel like they're um, built to deliver a gag or set up a string of gags or something along those lines. But they all do have a structure. And yeah. the, the daydream structure of this is actually something that carries on into a lot of movies and TV uh, these days. Yeah. I mean, it's the same kind of, uh, in a way, it's the same structure of like, it's a wonderful life, but with a twist. Um, mm -hmm. that we've seen elsewhere before. And it is fair because this is in that era where you're expanding to the feature film, but you haven't really, the, the plot structure of the feature film isn't a hundred percent established yet. Like the telling an entire story, uh, arc in an hour and a half to two hours isn't quite firmed up yet. It's begun, but it hasn't become as solid as it will in the next uh, few decades. Probably not until the 40s will you see the classic Hollywood structure of a film really firm up. Um, and keep in mind that what the feature-length uh, movie is based off of is probably the play, but most plays are much longer um, yeah. than, than that, including an intermission Especially in between. Point, all three of these movies are like under an hour and a half. Yeah, so this is kind of like an unexplored area of... Um, of, of storytelling that's going here in space real, around one guy being really funny and what can we do with that and in a way yeah. and the you know maybe it's because it's at the start of the uh, century or maybe because it's exploring a new format there's something about Buster Keaton movies that always remind me a little bit of like early YouTube skits like we've got some people who are funny and they're experimenting with a new format yeah um, and it's based entirely around the personality of one or a few people. And in this case yeah. is Buster Keaton being funny. Um, that experimentation is thing is, is important too. And I think that like 
one of the YouTubers that I was thinking of, because I kind of, you know, was along the same lines with you on that. Um, and I kept thinking of like Zach King, the guy who does a bunch of uh, perspective magic tricks, uh, oh, just yeah. like in really quick snippets. Because Keaton does a lot of that stuff. With, they're called like uh, impossible gags, uh, which he would eventually kind of move away from because he he wanted the gags to be more based in realism. But there are things like in Sherlock Jr. when he jumps through the suitcase uh, that it, there's some kind of a trap door thing happening and he jumps through the suitcase that the person is holding up and uh, disappears into it. it. And he vanishes into the dress and he does a quick costume change that way. Yeah, and it's really impressive, but it's something that you're like, whoa, wait a second, how did he do that? Uh, And so you're thinking about the gag more than what's going on in the story at that moment. Uh, But they're still really impressive. Yeah, I love love the the impossible gags in this movie, specifically the one of, uh, well, I guess it wouldn't be an impossible gag, would it? Where he walks into the movie screen. Uh, yeah, I think so. Cause in the logic of the movie, he, he walked into another movie. Yeah. Yeah. So and, the, and the know, trick itself know. isn't really magic, but it, in terms of like story logic, it is. Yeah. We know how they did it too, which is actually quite clever the way they set it up. Um, it's, it's literally just a frame around the stage. So it looks like he walks into it, but with a very they, flat set and all yeah. deep, deep focus before they get into, he walks into the shot. They show, uh, clips of the actual screen playing uh, mm-hmm. with close-ups and stuff. So you establish it is a movie and then they go to the wide, which is where he enters in. And then when you get into deep into the movie, you're, you're moving beyond the stage, um, which is quite clever. It's also mm-hmm. quite meta, which I quite enjoy because um, he's playing on the idea of the audience watching the movie and dreaming about being in the movie. Um, also audience reactions to the movie. And I think, as far as the meta angle goes, there's actually some important or interesting or um, significant commentary in this movie at the very end. Uh, once he gets uh, everything's been resolved and he's like he's back with his girl again, everything's uh, been fixed, but he's in the projection room and he wants to make a move, but he has no idea how to do it. And he's like looking at the screen. He's like, yeah. OK, yeah, he's copying what he sees on screen. And that's actually kind of honest like that's a big way that for the past century um kids have learned romance from in a big way is seeing it on screen and copying what they see there sometimes yeah. for Among better other and sometimes things, for worse and and i wonder how much that had really been established at this point depending on you know what kinds of movies and the fact that maybe not every tv wasn't or uh, i guess film may not have been quite as ubiquitous as it would become in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So it's almost more prescient than like a, a direct commentary on on what's going on. But it is like it's it's so accurate uh, and timeless because, I mean, that's something that as long as uh, film and television are the primary mediums for our uh, entertainment, then they're also going to be primary mediums for our for impression and for replication learning, and that learning kind of thing. how social uh yeah. laundries work i mean yeah. how many times do you think about is that what i've seen people do and you include in that list things you've seen in a movie um right. and you it's so easy Hence to go like phrase, yeah that's that only happens behavior. in movies yeah 
Uh, it's so easy to go, oh, that's normal behavior when you've only seen it in movies. And I'll tell you what, if you've seen it in recent movies, anything made in the last two decades, it's probably not normal behavior. But um, unless it's made by like Bombok, but. Yeah, or it's like Verite documentary. Um, but yes, it is a significant piece of meta commentary. That's really just a gag. But I think it's significant for more than just uh, its social interests. I think it shows how well Buster Keaton understands what makes movies tick. And that kind of plays in his character as well. Because his character, he tries to be bold, but he's really kind of, you know, he's, he's way weaker than all the other men in his films. He's not as... And he's so uh, short, like like his stature gets hammered home, especially in this one, a little bit in the other two. But when he's like, when he's sizing up everyone, yeah, and he's like staring up at his face and trying to, uh, you know, intimidate him as far as what was the what's rule number one? Search your man, which honestly, search, search, no, search everybody and searching everybody is like, sounds like a really obvious thing. But I thought about it and I was like. They never do that in movies. Like when they're when there's some kind of a mystery, they never just straight up search everyone who was there right at the moment. Like that seems well, that so would simple, it, so obvious. That would end it in the plot <laughs> too fast. In in yeah, here, in here, the the rule structure, the fact that he's reading that book at the beginning, is really clever. Um, because one, it makes the cuts the um, screen titles, the inner titles, way more interesting because we're looking at mm-hmm. a diegetic piece of information rather than just something interjected. Um, and two, it gives him a nice way to move the plot along. You've run a gag out. Yeah. Move on to the next rule. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, and and I also want to kind of go back, because we had mentioned uh, uh, the, the love interest at, uh, a little earlier. And her character is really interesting because she ends up being the hero that he dreams about being, which is such a fascinating kind of twist on the whole thing because I love that she's getting stuff done while he's like off daydreaming about, yeah, being, being the hero, which honestly the, uh, when he's daydreaming about being Sherlock jr or whatever, he's, it's almost turns more into like a bond movie where the the bad guys have like exploding pool balls and poison and like booby traps. It gets really Uh, extreme. Yeah, it's but it's so like over the top in a way that Bond movies Which, and adventure movies and spy movies will will become in the decades to follow uh, almost more unironically than anything, which true. makes this even more of a prescient kind of a commentary. I like I like that it's kind of a play on the like dreamlike quality of silent films. A uh, film as a medium, yeah. A film as a medium, but especially silent films. I think a lot of people when you look at the a lot of the scholarship a lot of it goes back to that point over and over again with that silent films felt much more dreamlike than mm-hmm. um, sound films because they, they were less like reality. Uh, but one of the, one of the things that I really like about Buster Keaton and the thing you brought up about the woman saving the day um, is that is, is this is one of the big differences in his persona from say like Charlie Chaplin, which most of you are very familiar with. Um, the tramp character is always, always, always a little more clever, uh, than he's everybody else bunny. on screen. Yeah. He's the Bugs Bunny. Um, Buster Keaton's character is just earnest 
<laughs> he tries he really try, hard. Yeah, he's trying. He, he tries really hard, but he typically screws it up. And it's typically someone else who comes in and saves the day. But he's earned whatever help he's gotten from being so honest and genuine and having the blank face. It, it was it would almost be as if he if he smiled and was like thoroughly enjoying the adventure as if you hadn't have earned it, hadn't had earned that help, hadn't earned that ending. But with him being as genuine and heartfelt as a person, as uh, no nonsense as he is, that you understand that he really he really wants this thing. He's really earned this thing. He's earned the help. And not, I think, and at least this in the cameraman, it's the woman who saves the day. Uh, maybe a woman in the monkey in the cameraman. But yeah, no, the monkey gets all the credit in the camera. Yeah. <laughs> but you, but you, but he's, he, that was the person he's after. And so the woman resolving the plot is nice, but really he's gotten what he's wanted. He's gotten his own goal. He's completed his own arc through being genuine and being heartfelt. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, that heartfeltness winning his own arc is what causes the, his love interest to come through in the end and resolve the plot of the film for him. So it doesn't feel unearned. It actually just feels uh, a little humble, actually, which is surprisingly nice for uh, silent era comedians. Yeah, and it it provides a nice contrast because I think in all three of these, the he's always kind of the uh, the second choice suitor. You know, there's always a, a bigger, stronger guy who has more impressive credentials uh, or who's a, a better soldier or whatever. Um, and so just his sheer persistence and genuineness is what has to prove him to the love interest, uh, which is what gives him the leg up on on just the sheer brawn of everyone else, which is also what makes him more relatable because we all think of ourselves as the underdog. Yeah, no, nobody is the big bad in their own story. Yeah, right. Everyone feels a little un like life is unfair to them, which can be the case. Um, but <laughs> it is especially the case in here. And the fact that he just like never gives up is nice. Anyway, uh, the fact is that he's just very enduring, I think, is what mm-hmm. we're trying to get at. He is a very a character who it's very easy to feel very sympathetic with um, and both enjoy his escapades um, and find humor in how little he's enjoying them, which goes back to what you said about how he noticed how when he smiled more, the audience smiled less. Um, yeah. Just the deadpanness works. Yeah, and and it it continues to this day. I mean, you think of comedians like uh, like Bill Murray. We've talked about so many sad Bill Murray movies, but sad Bill Murray movies work because bad things happen to him, and he just has this kind of you know deadpan face on the whole time. Um, so the other thing is like uh, in this one and the next one, and kind of the cameraman too. But like these are not just straight action movies they are using other i like i keep wanting to call these things like pre-existing but i don't know how pre-existing some of this stuff actually is but you know there's the mystery genre and you know we know how mystery stories work obviously the film is called sherlock jr even though there's not like a huge it's not like he's homaging the sherlock stories or anything very specific it's just kind of sherlock it's like as the sherlock it's yeah, just a just stand in as, for all detectives yeah it's just like you know de- putting a detective cloak on on the whole thing so we kind of get how it flows um and but we do have you know his rules he's trying to follow that it's the uh 
I think probably today we see this in the um, the type of movies where someone wants to be a cop because they've seen cop shows. And so they're like just trying to follow all the things that they've seen on TV. And he's kind of doing that, but following all the rules that he knows about from his books about uh, detectives and stuff. And again, it's in a dream sequence. So it's all just kind of like fantasy in his head, whereas the girl is doing the actual detective work. Um, and so it's interesting that he's not just you know, setting yeah. up a bunch of, uh, of falling down gags. He's actually like using preexisting, uh, kind of literary structure that we know about to deliver those gags and both elements of it work. Yeah. I actually really like the subplot of the, um, the love interest going and solving the case. There's actually like quite a bit of plots to manage in this particular movie. Um, mm-hmm. And they're done fairly well. Like he is a sh- he he has problems at his job. He's falling asleep. His boss gets mad at him. Everybody's looking for a dollar in the pile. Um, he's having oh problems gosh. with his love the dollar interest. gag that goes on for like ten minutes at the beginning of the movie is great. Yeah, that's just like a mood setter at like the very beginning yeah. of the film before we even get into the plot. That's just tone setting. Which actually that isn't something we've set we've talked about a lot on the podcast. But this is a good time to because um, mm-hmm. we're gonna see early, the same thing in the cameraman. Uh, at the very beginning of a movie or any story in any format, really, you have to you make promises to your audience regarding what tone it's going to have. Um, so if you're in a drama, you set up some dramatic beats early on. Uh, nothing too heavy, but you you let them know that way that you you don't take you don't you, the audience doesn't feel like you take a right turn into a completely different movie halfway through. Um, twists are fine. But you want to state what kind of thing the audience should be prepared for in this film. And in this case, it is comedy of a certain type. And you're also setting up how the extras in the film are going to work, which is a little rude, um, a little brash and a little selfish. Um, And you do character development on Keaton when, you know, he's trying to hold on to this one dollar and then. He finally decides to give it to the one guy who's like down on his luck. And then, you know, he's like, no, that's not the one I want. And then he finds like a big pile. And then Keaton's like, oh, crap. Yeah, that guy was hilarious. Uh, But yeah, it's a it's a good instance of um, expectation and tone management, which is important in movies and all storytelling, Um, especially in really brash comedies, because you want to know what kind of humor you're going to be experiencing. So you get to see the deadpan early on. You get to see the uh, how Buster Keaton reacts to things, how the world treats him. He's unlucky. You should not expect him to get lucky breaks in this movie. Yeah. So, yeah, well, uh, another thing I want to bring up about the gags in this movie is um, that this shows how uh, meticulous Keaton was in his uh, setups and stuff. So going back to the gag we already talked about where he jumps into the movie screen and then the scene starts changing and he's in the same place and trying to, uh, you know, manage whatever new situation he finds himself in. So he's in a house, and then he's uh, in the middle of a street, and then he's uh, you know, on this rock with waves crashing over him and stuff like that. And so, uh, but apparent when they were filming, they had to like use uh, like really precise measurement tools, and they had to measure the position in frame and everything so that he would be exactly in the same position. And it shows just kind of like how dedicated he was to pulling off uh his gags and again like why if keaton has an idea in his mind that's going to take you know an extra two weeks to get it exactly right 
once he's under a studio system, that's not going to fly uh, unless yeah, it's no, already been pre-planned. Um, and so, but that gag pays off because that's one of the most impressive gags of him just like jump. I mean, the whole setup is literally just for that gag, but it's so meticulously done that it pays off brilliantly. Um, and uh, it's it's just super impressive, but it it shows the dedication that Keaton has to all of all of his uh, all of his jokes. Yeah, yeah, it's the kind of like independent artistry that you're not used to seeing mm-hmm. it within the studio system. As, at least early on, it kind of had to auteurs of all varieties kind of had to learn to adapt to the studio system, and that yeah. took a while for it to really come to fruition. You don't see auteurs again until maybe the late thirties, early forties. Um, and even then in a very different guise than what you're used to in this era where the Mary Pickfords and the Charlie Chaplins and the Buster Keatons had uh, complete control over what they made, which is something very unique, uh, but also something that a company that interested in optimizing the revenue uh, does not tolerate well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think the last thing just to kind of transition us into the next movie is to talk about the action scene at the end of this movie where still in the dream sequence, uh, Sherlock Jr. is following um, or being followed by the bad guys as as he runs away. And there's a car chase. There's a shootout. There's um, riding you know, on the front of a up, motorcycle. Yeah. Riding on the front of a motorcycle, um, it, which goes in front of a train um, and all of these action pieces, again, they go into like using other genres for the comedy. Uh, and some of the comedy is literally just sheer skill and talent. And that's that's like what we're going back into is like Buster Keaton himself doing all these things is what you go to the theater for. Like it's his personality. It's uh, his physical prowess. It's like how. You know, so much conversation happens whenever Tom Cruise comes out with a new Mission Impossible movie and, oh my gosh, he actually hung off of that airplane or he's actually going into space, which I think is the last bit of news that I saw. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, God. Okay. Or whatever Tom Cruise is doing. It's the same kind of deal uh, where Buster Keaton is actually doing all of these things. And if he wasn't, which again, we're, I mean, this is just going to keep coming up. Uh when he started getting into the studio system, they made him use stunt doubles. And uh, as Buster Keaton would say, stunt doubles don't get laughs. It's because we didn't go to a theater to see a stunt double do a thing. We went to the theater to see Buster Keaton do a thing. And the fact that Buster Keaton can do the thing and can create a story and craft uh, this whole, uh, you know, world in which all of these ridiculous rules and things work. And he's kind of like, at the center, the mastermind and the victim of it all at the same time. That is what makes all of these things work so, so well. Yeah, no, it's part of the thrill. It's part of the spectacle. You know, he does it. So you go to go see it, um, which is, uh, advertising better than you could even hope for. Uh, yeah. And those gags through danger get amplified even more in the general. uh, Are you ready to move on? All right, yeah, set it up. The General from 1926. Railroad engineer Johnny Gray has two great loves in his life, his fiancée Annabelle and his train, The General. When the Civil War breaks out, he can't join the Confederate Army because of his status as an essential worker, and Annabelle quickly breaks up with him because of his inability to serve in the war. 
A year later, when his father is injured in the fighting, Annabelle starts off on a train to the front line, but is kidnapped by northern troops. When Johnny finds out, he risks life, limb, and locomotive on an all-out zany chase to save his love and possibly even rekindle it. All right, so we're also kind of going uh, on this scale this week, Alex, of um, Keaton's character going from imaginary hero to accidental hero to um, unrecognized hero throughout all three of these movies. So this one falls in the category of accidental hero uh, where he gets uh, thrown unwittingly into this grand adventure and it is grand and it is uh, epic and it is dangerous. This is actually um, the, the big climactic train wreck scene at the end of the movie is super impressive. And it's also apparently the most expensive scene ever shot for a silent film, which I completely believe. Really? I actually, you know what? That makes sense. They built a whole freaking train track <laughs> and then like destroyed a, yeah, it. A bridge of and with a train on it. And, uh, and there were tons of extras, you know, running back and forth across the water. Um, it's a, it's a big scene. This is a big movie guys. Yeah, no, it's huge. I also like how themed this whole movie is. It's like Buster Keaton was like, what would be funny? Trains. Trains would be funny. Let's yeah. do a whole movie on trains. Um, except it's based a little off bit of, of train stuff in Sherlock Jr. And now it's like, yeah, how much how many gags Before can we you, do on a train? Let's just do I all of them. Commented before about the first half of the 20th century's obsession with trains um, and how all movies had like train gags or train scenes. It was a different yeah. time. Trains were actually a common uh, were, were something everyone was familiar with. We all know what a train is now, but unless you've gone on Amtrak for some reason, uh, you probably haven't traveled on one. Yeah, unless um, you you're count subways, but I I wouldn't. Um, no. They were they were relevant to the day, is what we're trying to get to. Um, or if your hometown, you have, like ours, currently homes uh, is home to the uh, the National, National Train Museum? Railroad Museum. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I Which mean, is come exciting. to Frisco, guys. Go see the train museum. Come to Frisco for Except the train. Not right now. Don't travel right now. But, you know, <laughs> later. Come see Especially the train museum. Um, but, yes, yeah, we but have a very... Trains are dangerous. Trains are dangerous to be, like, the thing. Mm-hmm. The, you, I mean, you have them riding on the front of a train. You have them riding on the side of the train. Um, the inventiveness of the humor in this movie reminds me most, more than anything else, of, like, Jackie Chan's humor. Where it's oh, like, yeah. let's get him in a room and see how many things he can turn into a martial gag where he might get hurt. Or actually, in his case, he does get hurt. Um, and it's it's inventive and it's creative, endlessly creative, actually, over the course of the movie. Um, I also love that I mean, we were talking about how enduring his character was in Sherlock Jr. In the general, he is incredibly sympathetic because the world mm-hmm. just punches him around at the start of the movie. Also, he's as quirky as a Wes Anderson character, him holding oh, yeah. up his, him holding up the picture of him in the train. At, he's like, I carry this on me at all times. And it's like a framed picture of him in his train, which right. is called the general is straight out of a Wes Anderson movie. I fight me. It is hundred <laughs> percent that also the opening shot of him leaning out the window, push forward pan, or uh track forward to huh, track train track. That's where it's come from. Uh, uh, the word general on the engines also out of a Wes Anderson movie. Just, just oh, saying. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But yeah, his, also his, 
girlfriend not or, or like breaking up with him or his fiance, I think, uh, breaking up with him because he doesn't join the army because he's not allowed to because he is literally an essential worker. Um, yeah, really. <laughs> relevant uh, is one of the fastest ways I've ever felt sorry for a character in my life. Like she didn't yeah. even give him a chance to explain just dumped his ass. I never want to see you. Yeah. <laughs> until you're in uniform. I was like, Ooh, I would have more sympathy for you if you were on the other side woman, but you're not, which might've been <laughs> one of the reasons this was on the South besides the fact that it was, uh, based on a real true story. Events. Yeah. Uh, quote true events. Yeah. It's which may be one of the, one of the earliest examples of creating a fictional story based on real events. And it's so interesting that like such an epic event as a literal train chase, uh, you know, is used so well as a comedy vehicle. I mean, it's, it's action and comedy, which again is what, what I'm trying to get at is that the, the action and the comedy are not mutually exclusive. Like the comedy doesn't make the action in this movie feel less exciting because it doesn't feel like a setup for a gag. It feels like they are benefiting each other. The, the anticipation from the action heightens our sense of, uh, either, you know, thwarted expectations when it comes to the comedy or just sheer impressiveness when it comes to the, uh, um, the, the stunts and that kind of stuff. So the, the action and the comedy, feed off of each other more than they detract from each other, which I feel like, you know, there's so many modern films that try to do two things like that, but they don't land solidly on one side or the other, and they don't build on each other in the right way. But this film is like a masterclass in putting those two things together and making them, uh, you know, each, each part of it better for it. Yeah, no, it, they they marry each other really well over the course of this film. It's you feel both thrilled and but thrilled with delight at the same time, it, which mm-hmm. is weird because they're t- definitely in danger of losing their lives over the course of this entire movie, especially during the train chase. But yeah. you're like just having the time in of real your life, life watching and them. in the story. Do you do you know what the do you know anything about the true quote true events that? Uh, Preluded the story, Jonathan? The Union stole a Confederate train. I need to look it up again. Um, And they uh, drove it back with the intent to do as much damage to the railroad and to the towns that they passed as possible. Um, And I'm not sure if the train was rescued in the same way or not. Um, Whatever happened. I mean, just... I was watching the film and thinking that a train chase is, you know, kind of the most exciting, <laughs> like a huge, exciting thing that you don't see that much. Uh, I mean, not that we use trains that much in movies anyway. Um, more or less for, exciting like, than Snowpiercer. More exciting than Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer, the train was just like, I think it hit uh an ice block one time and that was kind of it as far as the train excitement yeah no that train didn't hold up too much did it <laughs> um i mean all the excitement happened inside the train in snowpiercer and that's a you know completely different story but as far as train excitement this movie's got snowpiercer way topped i was thinking a lot more of like uh unstoppable from 2010 which i think flew way under the radar it had uh chris pine and 
Uh, I think Denzel Washington. I'm not sure. Wait, is that is that like speed but on a train? Kind of. Without like the dastardly villain plot, it was just this train is out of control and we got to stop it. You know, and they made a two hour movie out of that somehow. <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the other thing is that Keaton like worked on keeping the events, you know, as true as possible, you know, with, you know, whatever character development that you got to put in there for, you know, keeping the audience's attention. Like the things that happened in the film, I think are pretty accurate to uh, the way that it actually happened. And he was proud of that. He was really proud of of this whole movie because there's so much that went into it again. Like um, like we were talking about with the last movie, how the cast is very small. Like it's, it's a very contained world. This is a very expansive world. There are so many extras. They've got like, good gosh, um, they go everywhere. Yeah. The difference in budgets the, between Sherlock Jr. And the general astronomical could not be more different. It's so, so big. There's, there's a scene where the, the train is, um, as the train is kind of, you know, just going, we see Buster Keaton doing a bunch of stuff on it, but the landscapes in the background are expansive. I think they shot this in Oregon. Um, there's a story about how, like, while they were on their way to the shooting location, they would stop in various towns and Keaton and the crew would play uh, baseball with the, um, with the people in whatever town that was. Um, apparently he was really good at baseball too, but as, as the train is going down, there's, there'll be like armies of people on horses. Uh, there's, there's like two huge armies at the end in the big climactic scene. Like there's so many people, there's so many, there's gotta be three or four trains at least that they actually use. And the amount of train cars that they just destroy. Um, apparently the only way to get around in a train in this movie is to break a freaking wall down with a hatchet. Uh, cause that happens multiple times. Uh, so there's just so Here's much Johnny. logistically that goes into this movie. Um, it's, it's just so impressive. And again, yeah, it's such a contrast from the small scale of Sherlock Jr. Yeah, no, this one really shows its bones and how much like the crew worked on it um, and how much Buster Keaton worked on it, too. You can also tell with the scale of this movie why he had a co-director. <laughs> yeah, um, there, there's a lot to do on this movie. Uh, there's a lot to coordinate um, and choreograph and, and all choreograph. that stuff. So, yeah, mean, and just, this one with the through line of the train and kind of progressing along the train track, which is kind of like a good metaphor for a plot in general, but progressing along oh, the yeah. train track and having the train chase kind of helps it um, overcome that idea of being a series of vignettes and move kind of more into the idea of a structured plot. Even the part where we take a break from the train and he goes linear. into the house in the rain. Um, it's kind of like the yeah. nice low point in that late half of the second act that you need. Um, you can tell it's only been a few short years since. It's only a what, two-year difference between this and Sherlock Jr.? But yeah. the competence with the plot making and especially the storytelling within the time frame of a feature film has gone up a lot in just that short amount of time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and as far as like the, the plot structure, it made me think a lot of um, Mad Max Fury Road, where it's kind of like a car chase one way across the desert, and then they turn around and they do the car chase back the other way with like various incidents happening along the way. I mean, it's Are kind of the same thing Buster here. Are you saying that Keaton invented Mad Max? I mean, I would not... Uh, 
I would not argue you would with not, that statement. not say that. <laughs> I would not not say that. That's for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's so linear. There's like the the story is literally on rails. I kept thinking about that. It's like it could almost be some kind of like a a fate metaphor if you wanted it to be. Um, but yeah, there's so much physical, like having a physical yeah. uh, setting uh, mechanic that mirrors your plot moving forward is uh, very nice within the series of a movie. It, it, it always answers the question of where are we going next? Well, wherever the road takes us. Okay, Alex, I, I kind of want to ask this about the, the, the last movie too, but do you have a favorite gag from this movie? Uh, I think the best one, in my opinion, isn't the flashiest. Although I am a fan of the nonsense with the giant, super expensive set. Um, it's the one where he just sits on the, I don't know what you would call it, the lever oh, yeah. the, on the side of the train that connects the, the, the wheels. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's a name for that that I just don't know. Um, train terminology. <laughs> maybe somebody out there knows. <laughs> uh, but whenever he just sits on that and is sad and it carries him away at the start of the movie, and then he repeats it at the very end of the movie, but this time with his lady love who he's made nice with. Um, yeah. I just really like that gag because one, it's funny. Two, it's creative. Three, it plays on his character of being the sad person that life just kind of carries along uh, through all of this nonsense that's funny for us to watch. And four, it's used very well in the plot. Like it, it, it's at the beginning and it has one meaning and then it's reused at the end with a very different meaning. Um, they're being, he's being carried through life alone and sad at the end and being carried through life, but with a partner now at the very end of the movie. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great one. Um, I, I, yeah, there's so many good ones. Um, I think before I watched this one again, the one that, that I remembered most vividly for whatever reason is, is the one where, uh, they're at the water spout, which I don't know exactly what those water spouts are for, but they show up in this and Sherlock Jr. Um, and he keeps, you know, trying to cap the water spout and then it it gushes water on the the love interest and then he moves it and then it gushes water on him and they keep going back and forward on that. So either that or uh, the cannon bit where he keeps lighting the cannon and almost shooting himself. Uh, and then accidentally making it look like he made a good shot at the uh, at the bad guys, uh, which was super fun. <laughs> yes, that was quite funny. Anything that can be repeated for humor, and we talked about the hat trick before, mm-hmm. uh, but anything that can be repeated for humor is always a great idea in uh, when you're doing film comedy or any kind of comedy for that matter. Uh, callbacks are funny. It makes it it makes it feel like you have a in joke with the audience, even if they just heard it for the first time. Yeah, right. Um, so I we do need to talk about a little bit uh, the fact that even though nowadays this is considered, um, generally considered his masterpiece, it is almost always included in lists of best movies ever made. Uh, and yet it's one of those that we talk about all the time that flopped when it was released and didn't really get its accolades until later on. I was reading some of the contemporary reviews where they're talking about how uh, there are long stretches of time in this movie where all we're seeing are two locomotives chasing each other. And I'm like, that is exciting. What are you talking that, about? That's the, is that, is that not the point? <laughs> um, and yeah, they're like, they're like, are you uh, not entertained? 
when will Buster Keaton learn that soldiers killing each other is not a place for comedy? And I'm like, but I mean, he gives that part its due and he doesn't make light of, you know, the war aspect, but he can add the comedy and it still works. It's, it's so interesting that people just didn't get it when it came out. I don't know. Buster uh, Keaton critics. loved it. I mean, they put so much into it, but I mean, it's one of those things that again, you never know what films are going to stand the test of time right when they're released, because we have come across film after film after film that flopped and is now considered one of the greatest uh, pieces of cinema ever. Yeah, it happens a lot. Uh, critics can sometimes be uh, mean and nasty or just not in touch with or something that's new or inventive. Or have ulterior motives that are uh, mm-hmm. very <clears throat> time-specific. Yeah, exactly. Uh as much uh, as much or little as Orson Welles may have uh, deserved those uh, of course, sentiments. We we say this as two critics ourselves. Yeah, we're we're we try to uh, stage ourselves as analytics uh, rather than critics. Uh, yeah, we we try. We're not doing it for any. <laughs> we're not doing it to get readers, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's it's we're, we try to stay. Uh, I, although we do make merit judgments. We try to look more at King Kong 1973. Elements, yes, King Kong 1977 uh, will always be our punching bag on this on this show. Um, but we try to we try to focus on what are the elements that go into making the film good or bad. What elements work even if the film doesn't work? That kind of thing. So that's that's our justification for uh, not being the bad guys on this this side of film history. Uh, all right, so let's move on to The Cameraman from 1928. Jason, why don't you set that one up for us? The Cameraman from 1928. Buster is a sidewalk tintype portrait photographer who, after a parade, develops a crush on Sally, a secretary at a newsreel company. So Buster sets out to become a newsreel cameraman, and despite many mishaps and discouragement, Sally starts to fall for his charm, going on a date with him to the city pool. The date goes seriously wrong after a series of mishaps, with a rival cameraman swooping in and crashing the event. But with a hot tip the next day, Buster is back at it. He's got an unexpected monkey in tow and the drop on a Chinatown gang war right for the filming. Despite his string of bad luck, Buster might save the job and the girl with a little bit of persistence, heart, and some help along the way. This one is probably the most vignette uh, of the films. And, but and again, purposefully, it almost works. Yeah, no, it's it's very it's like driven vignettes, which works um, because it's about a cameraman who, you know, is going around. I think we both had the same thought this week is that um, this is like really close to the plot of Nightcrawler, except for it's way less like dark and neo-noiry, obviously. Yeah, um, yeah. But what he's got to go out. What if the and, guy in Nightcrawler wasn't a sociopath, but a good human being? Yeah, exactly. There you go. Um, just down on his luck. Uh, and so he's going out just like trying to just finding things to film. One of the shots that just sticks out to me from this movie is Buster Keaton hanging off of uh, the fire truck with his camera, um, which feels kind of Wes Anderson-y to me. Also, there's there's a lot of this that feels Wes Anderson-y. But that shot of him where the camera is attached to the fire truck and he's hanging off the back of it and then the fire truck ends up pulling uh, into the yeah. station oh, rather the, than like going to a fire. Bumps? Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, and, but I feel like that's, 
that's a must have been like a really novel kind of a filmmaking. Like it's almost a GoPro shot now, like a throwaway kind of thing. And yet it must have been pretty revolutionary. Like there's so much revolutionary stuff that happens in these movies. Keaton will actually say about things like uh, like in Sherlock Jr. with the uh, when they were filming the the scene change gag and like cameramen would just go see the film over and over and over again and just be like, how did they shoot that? Just trying to figure it out so that they could copy him um, or just get inspiration for future things uh, because there's so much uh, that was going on. There's another story about how all the the silent comedians would kind of steal each other's gag men, the people who would just write, write the one-off jokes. They would come in to, you know, fill the story with jokes and that kind of thing. And Comedy like, writers. Yeah, right. We've, but we've all seen 30 Rock. <laughs> they would like they, they would say, you know, Buster Keaton comes up with all of his own jokes. So we can't steal Buster Keaton himself, so there's there's not much <laughs> there's not much there. Um and you know, it's just his so ingenuitous with the way that he plugs hey, in Do you these, mean ingenious? Um, ingenious? Yeah. His ingenuity shines through in the way that he plugs in his his uh, one off gags and stuff like that. Um, and again, this one is probably kind of falls in the middle of the uh, the size range of these two films. But there's still some really, really impressive stuff in here, like the uh, the gang war and uh, the the monkey steals the show, though. I mean, let's be real. It's a well-trained monkey, man. It is. He like he seemed like completely knew what was going on. Like, he seems directable. I don't know how you do that with a monkey, but he, I like, mean, more totally... directable than most human actors I've met. <laughs> right. There's a lot of just kind of, like, one-off stuff in this movie that I'm trying to... I'm Because try- the, the swimming pool scene almost feels like it's not from this movie when I think about that and the, uh, the gang war at the same time. <laughs> I was a little surprised when I saw it in this movie on my rewatch because I remembered that swimming pool scene, but I didn't remember it being in this movie. Yeah, it feels like a Mr. Hulo's kind of a kind of a thing. Yeah, kind it's of got a scene. that vibe. Um, but then once it gets into the more actiony stuff at the end, like this one almost mixes genres um, as much as uh, like the other ones kind of use genre. This one kind of just plays on a bunch of various genres uh, where they have kind of like vacation scene they have like the the thwarted romance scene they have the battle scene and it all goes into like buster keaton being this kind of uh well-rounded filmmaker like within the story uh which works really well but it does make it feel like oh my gosh these all kind of go together like it it feels i don't want to say disjointed but you know what i'm getting at yeah, it takes a lot of turns. It's it's a little yeah. disconnected compared, especially coming off of uh, coming off of the general, which is has that very straight through line, literally like track laid out for it. Um, it does feel more disjointed, which isn't which isn't completely out of the blue for a lot of comedy movies. That's not like something I would yeah. say is totally random, uh, but it, it's just especially compared to what we've seen before from some of his other movies, it is a little surprising. Yeah. And we're definitely, um, you know, looking at all of these movies with modern film sensibilities, modern genre expectations and that kind of thing, which don't always apply in the same way. Um, and one thing 
that I was thinking about during this movie, which I just looked it up and I realized that the movie came out the, the next year, but I feel like this would be a good double feature with a uh, man with a movie camera by uh, Ziga Vertov, um, yeah. who's a famous uh, Soviet filmmaker who made man with movie camera, which is documentary, like experimental documentary, but it's, it's a similar kind of thing where he makes this film about how film kind of encompasses all of life. And that's kind of what you get here when you have all of these different elements going into it. It's just showing the breadth of what film and cinema is, uh, you know, encompassing the uh, even into kind of the news realm. And so that that breadth of comedy and that breadth of of scene and tone and all that kind of stuff kind of works for that reason i think yeah yeah no i i kind of like the nightcrawler aspect of this movie um it's really interesting and i didn't know it went back this far i mean it makes sense somebody had to go get all that newsreel footage yeah um and i like how it's, it's contrasted at the beginning with all these heroic people out in the field doing going into putting themselves in danger to get the news um, yeah. to bring it back to, to us poor humble people. Uh, With what I assume is actual like world war one footage in that, in one of the first shots where probably. they have the cameraman green screened over the, uh, the war footage and that kind of thing and showing how heroic cameramen are. And then we see Buster Keaton with his, uh, with his tin type, which that was such a great introduction. It was so, <laughs> It was so funny. It was like, here's all these noble people, and then here's this guy with the tintype. Yeah. <laughs> this is who we're going to tell our story about. And just to preface, tintype is literally uh, a it's like really early. Polaroid. Yeah, it's a really early camera, um, still camera method where you would expose a like a piece of film that's within a, a little, um, essentially a can. Like you can literally do it with a soup can. Um, there's a piece of film in there that when it's exposed to light, it will imprint the light onto the film itself rather than, and in a positive format, because normally you expose it in a negative and then you've got to take it and develop it and, you know, reverse all the colors and it turns positive. All that technical stuff that digital, uh, photographers and cinematographers don't have to deal with anymore. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's the cheapest way to make a photo, probably that will ever be invented. Um, it's literally just a piece of film and a can and a hole. Uh, and so this is, this is our hero. He's over here trying to sell, um, photos taken through a can. Can hole. Uh, and he falls ridiculously in love with, uh, with a woman he's seen for five seconds. Um, as you do, which is ridiculous. Uh, and he's like pressed up against her in the crowd, which is a little creepy, but yeah, can't be excused, uh, considering that's as creepy as the whole thing gets, and the rest is very respectful and endearing. Um, but yes, he, he he's just so juxtaposed uh, compared to everybody else in the the realm in the world of this film who's successful by comparison. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you and can't again help. we have the you have that the under big, thing, like, underdog thing going for him again. Yeah, right. Because we have the the big uh, you know. MGM cameraman, blah, blah, blah. Again, this was made after he signed with MGM. So got, he's got to compete against the studio cameraman. Uh, it's almost like a metaphor for Buster Keaton before he 
was in the studio. Ironically, the first film that came out after he was signed with the studio, but then eventually, like it's 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 a really classic kind of a a, a love story arc where you know he gets misunderstood. The other guy looks like the hero. And oh, then yeah. the other he, guy kind of ends accidentally up taking advantage of the situation to sabotage Buster Keaton. Yeah, Not directly. Right. He didn't interfere with the, the camera, but he did continue to twist the story to his advantage. Uh, mm-hmm. Thereby, and then the truth comes out yeah. uh, kind of unwittingly uh, because the monkey saves the day. The monkey is the best. Monkey's, monkey's king. the best. <laughs> we all need a good monkey. Um, we didn't even bring up the fact that there was a, a freaking bear in the general. Oh, yeah, there was, wasn't there? <laughs> Lots of animals Which, uh, inside of the film. They use a lot of, yeah, wild animals inside of the film. It was crazy. Um, but, yeah, so the the monkey ends up, the monkey is like the first documentary filmmaker in this film. I think the monkey invents documentary filmmaking in this movie. That would make sense. <laughs> um, but, yeah, okay, so we should also talk about the, uh, uh, the gang war, which we've we've kind of been hinting at, but that is the most got to be the most impressive part of this whole movie. Like, <laughs> there's so much choreography that goes into that, um, and so much of the story hinges on it too. Uh, where there's there's these two rival gangs, and uh, Buster Keaton gets the tip off that they're going to start fighting, and then he goes there, and then you know it's literally like. Um, John Ford at the Battle of Midway where he just ends up in the middle of this battle and he's just turning the camera around and trying to catch whatever's happening and then he eventually ends up like in the middle of the fight and then he ends up in the the uh, ringleader's headquarters and uh, is like right there when the whole thing comes to a head and uh, he ends up with a monkey out of it uh, the monkey Wait, that happened right beforehand right like the it was an organ grinder's monkey in the middle Oh, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. That happened right before. Um, but the monkey becomes complicit in the gang war because he shoots a, a machine gun. And who knows how many casualties were at the hands of this. <laughs> oh, my monkey. gosh. The monkey murders people. <laughs> it's like, a, this is the a dark monkey movie, casually man. murders people in this movie. And you laugh about it. <laughs> and you laugh about it. That's man, how you good really have to do Keaton some is. self uh, soul searching after watching that. <laughs> And then, of course, there's the I like the ending of this movie because it is very similar to how the plot is resolved in Sherlock Jr. Um, in that the the woman kind of saves the day. He, yeah. Uh, After but, she but when, he's he's won the movie, so to speak. He's completed his arc and won the movie when he saves the woman from drowning. Yeah, because he knows he he's been so. he's been defamed and he he lets it go and he goes to live his life. Um, and then she realizes the mistake that she's made and then she, uh, she comes back, but, um, it's really dramatic structure by the end. Like for all the twists and turns that it takes, like you're super invested in these two characters. And then by the time he's, he's back to his tin type and she comes and she's like, I've made a mistake. You're just like so thrilled for them. Yeah, no, it's, it's a very endearing end. I also love that the monkey captures the last bit of footage. Yeah. Which makes yeah. me, which, which brings me to a question, Jonathan, who is the title referring to? Is it referring to Keaton or is it referring to the monkey? Ah, that's a good question. Uh, I'm going to go with Keaton. I'm going to go with the monkey. All right. Uh, leave us a comment below. Tell us, who do you think the cameraman is referring to? 
<laughs> yeah, let us know. Who do you think it is? Um, all right. Shall we go to overall notes? Yeah, let's talk about overall because, I mean, a lot of this is just there's so many like specific gags that you can just pull out of each of these. The stories are really well crafted and, and, and all of that. But the way that he's able to weave in like the ideas for each individual gag are so good. Um, and sometimes they're just like they're either dangerous or they're uh, straight up, you know, embarrassing when you think about him like i i still can't get over how weird the whole swimming pool scene is where oh it's very strange we spend five minutes watching him change in a in a um little tiny changing room with a dude who with a much bigger dude which is the gag who's also an asshole which is a one take uh it goes on for so long i don't know how long it is but it it probably feels longer than it is yeah yeah um and then so he comes out with the swimsuit that's way too big for him, and then he goes swimming and loses it, and then he steals the clothes off an old lady uh, later just to get out of it. And like, it's funny when you watch it, but when you think about it, you're like, "What is happening here?" Yeah, no, um, it's some interesting gags. It almost feels like gags that he couldn't fit in into some other project, and so they went here. Yeah, or it may be uh, a gag that someone else at the studio thought was funny, and this is kind of like the beginning of that, but. That's not verified or anything. That's just my speculations. But yeah, another thing that we should talk about that we haven't hit on too much throughout these films is that for silent films, Keaton was really insistent on keeping the title cards to a minimum. He thought, especially for the type of comedy that he did, as much communication should happen visually as possible. Uh, And so I think his average title card usage was... I saw a statistic somewhere, but it's like it's less than half of what the the general silent film average was, uh, because in the medium that he was using, you know, once you get into films where you can talk and that kind of thing, like, you know, you can't ride the line between a book and a movie by just throwing in 500 title cards uh, as you go through and people are trying to communicate like he's using the gags and he's using his expression and uh the blocking and all that stuff to convey everything that you need to know um and sometimes you can even like based on the situation someone will mouth something and you can tell exactly what they're saying so you don't even need to use the title card in that situation um and so he's using all of these physical visual gags not only for entertainment but also for communication and he was really good at it Yeah, no, that's one of the best. uh, That's often a mark of really good silent films when you don't need to rely on people spelling it out. It's the silent film version of show, don't tell. Um, You want to be engaged in the on-screen story happening through the live action events as much as possible. And every time you pause to go do an inner title, you're technically taking a break. It's like stopping in the middle of a paragraph to read a footnote. It's a little mm-hmm. disjointing. It's a little disconcerting. And it's one of the reasons why the the mechanics like looking at the rule book in yeah, Sherlock Jr. is much less jarring than going to a full blown inner title. Because it's diegetic, technically. Yeah. He only goes he only goes to titles when he absolutely needs it. Or like when the specific words used by a person matter a lot. Like yeah. when he gets refused for the service in the general and then he gets rejected by his fiance. 
that those words are the, the specific words she says are very important because they play into how he redeems himself later on. And it's hard to communicate that complicated of a sentence anyway, other than that specific intertitle. Yeah. And, and just to kind of spell it out in that instance, she says, I don't want to see you again until you're in uniform. And the irony is that the next time she sees him, he's in the, the union uniform undercover. And so it's like, Technically he is, but also it's kind of not what she was expecting. And so the the use of the words goes into, um, you know, paying off a gag that happens later on. Uh, even if it's not like a straight up gag, it's it's a situational irony that you wouldn't have get a, been able to get across if she had been pantomiming it or something like that. Yeah. It was it was one of the necessary usages. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I I went through that book. Um, who the hell made it? I think that's the one it is. Uh, I, he uses a different curse word in each of his books, Bogdanovich. But I think that's <laughs> who the hell made it. Um, and all of the directors who worked during the silent film, they all bring up trying to reduce intertitle usage to a minimum because yeah. it's so so jarring. And it's one of those things that I think doesn't help for uh, people trying to get into silent film who haven't been there before, uh, having to stop and read the movie isn't necessarily great. Um, but there are some really good examples out there of its usage. And it can be it can be good when done well. And Buster Keaton is one of those instances of it doesn't have to be too hard. Chaplin's pretty good at it as well. And uh, anything directed by... Oh, gosh. I'm blanking on his name. German made a lot of really good movies. Fritz Lang? Fritz Lang. Fritz Lang, Fritz Lang did a lot of really good work with intertitles. He tried to keep his to a minimum. Uh, I think there's almost none in M, which is... Well, really- M was technically sound. It was like it was the one that was on that line because... Uh, yes, that's right. Um, uh, Peter Lorre has a monologue at the end, so that was a mostly sound film, I think. Yes, yeah, that's right. It just kind of mostly feels, it feels like a silent film mm-hmm. or a lot It was of it. right it's on right. the edge there. I gotcha. Yes, but a lot of, we did watch some of his older stuff, some of his German fairy tale stuff, and oh, yeah. those as well. He does keep the inner titles to a minimum, and they are quite good. And the German expressionists were so good at conveying oh, yeah. <laughs> information I mean, what, visually that they almost didn't need it. That's what the term expressionist means. Yeah, and, uh, is to actually, convey meaning through visuals. To make a specific connection, I was thinking about uh, Fritz Lang during Sherlock Jr. Because there's the moment where um, when the dream sequence starts, Buster Keaton is asleep uh, at the projector. And a kind of, you know, what we think of is most commonly used now as like a spirit leaving the body kind of effect where uh, he stands up, but he's still sitting there. Um, and it reminded me of the one of the other early examples of that kind of thing was in uh, the Testament of Dr. Mabuse where there's like this split between um, the, the evil version of Dr. Mabuse and the the other version. And um, it's really jarring and the like creepy in that film. man haunts yeah. our existence during this lifetime. Thank you, Fritz. Uh, <laughs> but the, that use was um, really interesting just to be seen in like a really lighthearted context. Cause you almost, only see that uh, you still do see that effect today, but it's almost always has to do with like death or um, something much more tragic and or suspenseful. 
death is the one truth that we all come to know as mortal men. You're getting a little bit into uh, Werner Herzog, but I'll take That's it. really what I was channeling more <laughs> of. Yeah. Okay. It, it, they were just, it was just Germans, you know? Yeah. Um, so I do think we have to give like an honorable mention this week to Steamboat Bill Jr., which is like oh, it's hilarious. Right, right outside of um, being on this list. We're just, you know, based on our constraints for the podcast, we picked the three. But Steamboat Bill Jr. has some of the most classic Keaton gags in it. Uh, for example, the uh, the house falling on him uh, and he, he stands in the, the little tiny window, which is just insane um, because that house was literally two tons that that piece that fell on him. And he had what, like two feet of of a uh, range that he could have stood in. And then the wind stuff that I don't Hit even know how mark. they pulled off some of the wind stuff. Um, and uh, there, there's so much good stuff in. Uh, Steamboat Bill Jr. And again, like we kind of tried to hit home last week when setting up this episode, all of these are available online. And so if you're interested in doing comedy filmmaking, if you're interested in the origins of filmmaking, if you're interested in uh, modern comedy, go look up these movies. They are all available for free uh, online. I will even be putting links to them in the blog post for this episode. Um, but there's so much that can be uh, learned and more than just learning. Like they're just enjoyable. Like every time I watch a silent film, I'm amazed because there's, there's like this in, in general population, I feel like there's a stigma against, you know, old films where people be like, I don't watch black and white films. And yet when you watch them, you realize a lot of times there's more creativity in those old films than in anything that's coming out these days. Uh, and it's, it's so refreshing. It can be so refreshing to watch films that are over a hundred years old. Um, so I highly recommend watching all three slash four of these movies um, and just kind of getting getting your own enjoyment and fulfillment out of them beyond what we've said. Because we can state yeah. the obvious, but it's, oh, yeah. it's the thrill of actually watching it that really counts. I mean, we're basically the state the obvious links. Yeah, <laughs> there's that. Uh, we watch <laughs> it so that you can watch it later. <laughs> I mean, I would recommend these films for anybody who wants to do any sort of comedic work i don't just mean stand-up comedians but anybody who wants to be funny in whatever they do whatever creative pursuit you do or even if you just want to be funnier in a day-to-day -day setting um comedy and humor is one of those things that's hard to define you can't really define it but you can improve your ability at it through yeah. comprehension taste and sensibilities are so broad too yeah 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 you have to see like it's hard to say what makes something funny um, there's a lot of different theories on it, but none of them are hundred percent true. Uh, so it often helps best to improve yourself through watching stuff. That's funny and watching stuff on a broad context. That's funny to learn different ways to make people laugh. So bringing it back you, to the Sherlock junior meta commentary. Yeah. So if you genuinely want to learn how to be funny, watch Buster Keaton, Watch Charlie Chaplin, watch Harold Lloyd, then go into like the comedy duos of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Watch the SNL wave of the 70s. Don't just watch SNL because that's what's happened to SNL. Um, yeah, sorry, right. did, I just, did I just throw a hot take out there? I think I did. Uh, that's the what's happened to leads. SNL. SNL has become a parody of SNL. Anyway. Um, Probably literally. Have they done a joke about themselves? Probably do. Uh, I also don't know if they're all 
coked up as much as they were in the early days. <laughs> That's true. But yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely a sense that uh, if you're only influenced by the things that are, you know, coming out contemporarily, then everything will just start to feel stale and the same, uh, which it has. Yeah. So watch the old stuff. Yeah, be broad. Be broad in your reading and your studying. All right, well, we are sticking with the old stuff next time on the podcast, Alex. Why don't you let us know what we will be talking about when we meet here again? Well, I'm very excited, Jonathan, to talk about one Dorothy Arzner uh, next week this on the podcast. Kind of, uh, one of almost a two-hander kind of an episode thing that we're going to be doing back-to-back with uh, some more... Arzner uh, and then another classic. female director. Yeah, they, yeah, they kind some of, of the lead into each other directors. in a very nice way. Yeah. Um, so Dorothy Arzner, if you didn't know, uh, is what the only female director working in Hollywood during the 30s and the early 40s. Um, there were many female directors during the silent era, but by the time sound came along and the DGA was formed, that wasn't really the case. So Dorothy Arzner was the first uh, female director in the DGA, uh, and the difference in her filmmaking shows uh, you can, you can tell uh, in, in how she makes her films. Uh, she made several uh, films over the course of her career and eventually retired to make a bunch of uh, Pepsi commercials or uh, for just gobs of money. And then uh, became a professor at UCLA where she taught one Francis Ford Coppola and is often cited as her, one of his big influences. So interesting. We're going to be talking about, yeah, he like just like a couple of years ago, I think he do, uh, dedicated a new building on the Paramount lot. I think don't hold me to that on the Paramount lot to her because she did a lot of her work there. Um, so, yeah, big influence on him, uh, both her films and her teaching. Uh, and she's wow. just she's a very interesting person for a lot of reasons. Uh, she was uh, one of the first um not openly, that's that's the wrong word for Hollywood at the time, but she was very gay, uh, and <laughs> that shows in her movies as well. Um, and she just has some interesting movies as well, uh, and we're going to get to see some interesting actresses in there. We'll get to see a fairly young Lucille Ball back when she played in all B-movies, and she plays the heavy in Dance Girl Dance, which is interesting oh, wow. to see her as like the bad guy. Uh, yeah. But anyway, the three films we're specifically going to be talking about are Get Your Man from 1927, um, which has Claire Bow in it. Um, big, big star from the late 20s. Uh, then Merrily We Go to Hell from 1932. And then finally Dance Girl Dance from 1940, which is her second to last movie. She made a war hero story after that. Um, had something like Courage in the title. Uh, but that is the breadth of her movies that we're going to be covering next week on the podcast should be an interesting look. Um, it's interesting how much, how different her, the, the social interactions feel in her movies compared to other movies of the same time. Uh, and that's kind of what drew me to that movie in the first place. Um, and I'm very excited to be talking about it next week on the show. I'm also really interested to watch uh, the first two films I think are pre-code and they are. Yes. Usually yep. it's not really an issue when we're talking about comedies like Buster Keaton, because those don't usually have that much kind of 
pushing the envelope type stuff. But with these with these dramas, I'm really interested to see uh, how that plays out. There's some dramatic endings. Um, there's also there, there's some there's some heavy stuff in there. There's also some very Hollywood endings. I think one I think Merrily We Go to Hell specifically is built and we'll talk about this more next week, but specifically built so that you can clearly delineate where Arzner wanted the movie to end. And then when the Hollywood ending happens in the last like 10 seconds of the movie. So it's technically sellable, but like you all know what that should have happened. Yeah. Like like it should not have been snuck in a a director's cut ending. Essentially. Yes. Like, you know, you know what the ending's supposed to be. Like it's not supposed to end happily. It's called merrily. We go to hell, you know, you know, it's going to be bad. Um, so yeah. All right. Yeah. It should be a very fascinating week. Uh, anyway, anything else to talk about, Jonathan? Uh, yeah. So as we plugged a little bit throughout the episode, we do have a Patreon account. So if you would like to support the show, you can do that. Uh, for $2 a month, you get to be part of our online community. You get to see our notes as we write them while we're watching the movies. Um, we have a discord where you can chat, uh, with other patrons about movies, Movies that we talk about the show, movies that we don't talk about the show. Uh, Sometimes we do Netflix parties. We uh, live record our episodes so you can hear all of our goofs and things that don't make it into the edited show. Uh, And then at the $5 tier, you get the bonus podcast, which is an extra content that comes out on the weeks that we don't release our main show episodes. And the last episode of that, we talked about uh, the recently released Emma, uh, which was hilarious. And we talked about... Uh, you know, the new phenomenon. I feel the draft. <laughs> there's always a draft. Uh, and there's always a screen to protect you from that draft. Um, and servants but, to carry the screen. And servants. So many servants. But we did, we talked about just kind of this new uh, thing that we're seeing with films being released early to digital streaming and where that might go and stuff like that. So if you like to hear... Man, has that taken some turns since we've released that podcast? Oh really? I don't know that I'm in the loop on that. So you saw, we'll talk you saw about AMC's that. boycott. Not yet, but that'll be a teaser for our bonus podcast, which we're about to record. So if you would like to hear more on that conversation, uh, go subscribe on the Patreon. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us, or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at @jssatchel, and I'm at Alex Garinger. And I'm at the Blue Jay 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. How much time do you think about trains? How much time do you dedicate to that in a day? What would you say, like um, 1% of it? 10%, 20%? No, probably higher than you think based on uh, how often I have to stop and compete with you on Ticket to Ride. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Actually, I almost forgot about that. There is a lot of Ticket to Ride going on. In fact, there is a game coming to a head right now. Uh, we are getting very close. Risky moves are being made. I know. I think I've been playing this this map wrong, too. But I that's have no idea how the stocks work. <laughs> I have I know, no I think, clue. I think I just figured it out, and uh, I think we have to redo this one. Yeah, um, I, I think I maybe know how it works now, but not entirely. Yeah.